please uh, join me in prayer as we take our needs and our cares to our Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we lift up this morning the village of, of East Palestine to you. That community has been wrecked by the devastating trail and derailment. Dangerous chemicals released into the air, to the water. We pray, Lord, that you would keep the people of that community safe from any harm from the chemicals. We pray for wisdom for all involved in the cleanup activities. We pray for wisdom for the leaders making the decisions on what's safe and what's not safe. But most importantly, we pray, Lord, that through the disaster, that your glory would be shown. We pray that the, the people of this community would not fear or be dismayed. We pray that these people would not grow frustrated with dis the disaster, but content in their Savior. We pray that your gospel would spread, the faith of the saints in that area would be strengthened, and that you would receive all the glory. Lord, we pray for the nation of Argentina this morning. While many claim to believe you in that nation, it's not evident that they all truly understand the gospel. We pray that you would raise up evangelical leaders who would train, disciple, and release other leaders into ministry so they would share the truth of your gospel. We pray for the urban poor, the slum dwellers, the homeless that's reached nearly half a million people in that country. Let your church be the sanctuary for those in need. Let your truth be their comfort and satisfaction for their souls. We pray that in our broken world, that your light and your truth would reach to the ends of the earth. That your glory would be evidenced in all of creation. And that you would reveal yourself to those who are lost, to those who are searching. We pray that you would bring re a resurgence of your gospel across the world, and that you would use us here at Gateway to be part of that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we are taking a little bit of a break from the ongoing series that uh, Chris has been preaching through in 1 Samuel, and we're actually going to be uh, in the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 4. Uh, so it's a little bit longer of a passage. It's going to be verses 1 through 45. So open up your Bibles, click, swipe, tap, do whatever you need to do so you can follow along this morning if you'd like to do that. Uh, and I will read for us. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, would, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is pretty deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you, you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told, told me all they ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of the, his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. 
a little bit of a longer passage this morning. One of the things that I love about living in Cleveland, there's a lot to love about it, but, but one of the things is that we have four seasons here. You know, each season is completely different. It's unique. Now, a lot of people share that sentiment, but just really hate winter, right? Winter, it's bleak, it's dark, it's cold, keeps you stuck inside a little bit more often. It's more dangerous to drive in the snow, the sun, it's barely out. There are days where you might not see it at all. That's all true. But one of the things that I've really grown to appreciate about winter is that it makes me appreciate the other seasons just that much more. Right? The, the emptiness of the trees makes me appreciate it when the trees are full of leaves and flowers. The crisp, cold air makes me appreciate those long, warm summer days. And just a few days ago, it was, like, what, 60 degrees out, uh, and windy was kind of cold still. Um, but for February in Cleveland, that's, like, basically summer. And so when that happened, uh, you know, I'm like, Grace, we got to go to the park. Like, let's go. Let's go spend some time outside. And it was great. It was amazing because it was just different than what we've been used to right now. If it was always 80 degrees and sunny, I'm sure I'd love that. But at some point, I'd probably lose my enthusiasm and excitement for that weather. At some point, you know, you'd probably stop rushing outside because the weather's nice. And eventually you might just stop noticing it at all. Sometimes we need to experience the woefulness of one situation to truly appreciate the wonderfulness of another. This uh, story in John chapter 4 um, of the Samaritan woman is revealing. It's revealing of, it, it truly reveals um, some wondrous truth about Jesus. But it also reveals some truly woeful truth about us. So the, the good news, though, is that the wonderful truth that this passage reveals about Jesus gives us hope for our woeful condition. And I know sometimes we want to look past the hopelessness, right, the despair, the depravity of our lives without Christ. But in doing so, that actually takes away from the greatest truths about him. And we miss out. And so as, as we work through this text this morning, I want to encourage all of you to see for your, see yourself as this Samaritan woman at the well. Because that's who we are in the text. And, and the main point that we're going to be drawing out of the text today is that the hopelessness of our lives without Christ magnifies the gracious, relentless pursuit from our Savior. John, he, he starts this uh, chapter off with this transition between, you know, the these two chapters, three and four, Jesus, he's been ministering in Judea and, and his teaching, it started to uh, generate a, a lot of a, a, um, attention. He started to attract quite the following. And the Pharisees, they took notice. And they noticed that, that more people were starting to follow Jesus than John the Baptist. And John tells us because of that, he decided to leave for Galilee. That, that leaves us with some more questions um, that John really doesn't answer here on, on why Jesus decided to leave. I think most likely there's two possible reasons for him traveling to Galilee. Uh, the first is he didn't want the Pharisees to pit Jesus' ministry against John the Baptist. Uh, since more people were starting to follow Jesus, the Pharisees could have easily made the argument that what John was teaching is not valid and that they should follow— that 
they can then discredit John's ministry. But we know that John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And that work that he was doing was essential. So maybe as a way to not get in the way of what John the Baptist was doing, Jesus decided to leave. Another possible explanation is that Jesus just knew that if he remained in Judea, that the Pharisees would have started to plot against him a little bit more quickly. He knew that, that this time, his time wasn't now, so in order to continue his ministry, he had to depart for a little while. Either of the explanations uh, seem to fit the narrative here, but the most important point is that Jesus didn't leave Judea out of fear. He didn't leave because he was afraid of what the Pharisees could do. He didn't run. He didn't flee. We can rule out fear because of what John says in chapter 3. He says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So nobody can touch, can touch Jesus without his permission. He's not leaving Judea because he's afraid. He's leaving Judea because he has work to do. He has souls to save, and so because of that, he heads to Galilee. And then we get to the verse 4, which is really easy to gloss over as a bit of this footnote. It says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria, geographically, it's sandwiched between Judea on the south and Galilee on the north. So you might assume that if you were going to go from Judea to Galilee, you'd go through Samaria. But that's not the typical path that most Jews take. The Jews despised the Samaritans, so the most common route was actually the, the longer route through the Transjordan. They would literally go all the way around Samaria into Gentile land just to avoid having to deal with them. But Jesus had some work to do in Samaria. He had an appointment with this woman at the well, and he, so he had to go through Samaria. Jesus, he ends up in this town called Sychar. He, he sends his disciples off into the town to go gather some food and bring it back. So he's alone. And he waits by this well. It's about the sixth hour of the, hour of the day, which is midday or, or noon. And he waits for this woman. Jesus' uh, conversation with this Samaritan woman can be broken up into three exchanges. And in each of these exchanges, I want to highlight the, the woeful truth of our lives without Christ and then the wonderful truth about him. Our hopelessness contrasted with his gloriousness. So let's look at the first exchange. Around noon, this Samaritan woman, she comes up to draw water from the well. And, and when Jesus sees her, he asks her for a drink. And that catches her off guard, right? She says, how is it that a Jew— Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why is that? Well, here's what D.A. Carson has to say about the situation. He says, After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722-721 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. We read about that in 2 Kings 17 and 18. After the exiled Jews returning to their homeland, the remains of the southern kingdom viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds 
whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. In about 400 BC, the Samaritans erected a rival temple in Mount Gerizim. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, which further fueled the religious and theological animosities. They also developed their own religious heritage based on the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books of the Bible. And they didn't accept the other books of the Hebrew Bible as canon. So we have some ethnic, some racial, and some religious issues here that, the Jew, that caused the Jews to despise the Samaritans. They were ceremonially unclean, they were racially impure, and they were religiously heretical. So they were avoided. But instead of avoiding this woman, Jesus engages. He does something that no Jew would do. He, he made sure he was alone, right? He sent his disciples away. He didn't need to send all of them to gather food. But that's what he did. He sat conspicuously and unavoidably by this well, waiting for this woman, who he knew was unclean, impure, heretical, dishonorable. And he asked not for permission to drink from the well, but he says, let me drink from your bucket. God of the universe, Savior of the world, perfect in righteousness, holy beyond measure, seeking a relationship with this unclean, impure, heretical, dishonorable woman. The God of the universe should have no dealings with a sinful woman like this. God of the universe should have no dealings with us sinful beings, we who worship idols over God, who seek entertainment over truth who desire ease over godliness, who are proud, arrogant, lazy, lustful, greedy. That's us. We have no right to a relationship with God. And yet, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our sinfulness, Jesus pursues the hearts of sinners. He relentlessly and graciously pursues us. And he offers us living water. For before we accept this living water, we are dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind to the kingdom of God. And Jesus offers us a living water. He responds to this woman. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But she's confused. She doesn't understand what he means by this. And she says, sir, I'm sorry, you don't have a bucket. How can you draw this living water for me if you don't have anything to draw it with? She doesn't get it. Similar to to Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And Nicodemus, he responds, how can someone enter into his mother's womb a second time? There isn't a womb big enough that would allow for that. He also didn't get it. They were blind. But at the same time, this woman, she can sense that Jesus has some claim to superiority here. She asks if he's greater than their father, Jacob. And in verse 13, he responds, Well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of the well water, that is. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, up, welling up to eternal life. He says, yeah, I am superior. 
Jacob, he gave you this well, and when you drink of it, you have to come back here. You're going to still thirst. You're going to come back here again and again and again for this water. But for my gift, the gift of God, is an eternal living water. It's a water that satisfies the soul. A living water that brings the spiritually dead to life. A water that after you drink it, it's not, it's not just this little bit of water, but it transforms into a spring of water that wells up inside of you. There will never be a need for you to seek anything more, for this water will sustain you for all of eternity. Jesus' superiority to Jacob here is her salvation. We later find out in, the, in this gospel that the water that Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean here to have living water? We need to dig into that just a little bit at least. Does that mean that we don't have any longings or desires? Jesus does say that you will not be thirsty again. But I don't think that means that we won't have any longings or desires. What he's saying is that our longings and desires, they're going to be met entirely and completely by this living water. Our souls, they will continue to thirst, and the thirst will be quenched by the Spirit of God. And and since there's this well of water, there, there isn't this need to go seeking out ways to quench this thirst with this fleeting satisfaction of the world. No, the living water, it will spring up. It will provide an everlasting supply of joy, of hope, of truth. Your soul thirsts. And Jesus has living water if you were to believe in him. But how does she respond to that? She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still doesn't get it. She's dead. She is spiritually dead. She is blind. She says, Sir, this bucket is heavy. And I have to come here every day to draw water, and I don't want to do that. So if you could lift this bucket, if you could make this a little bit easier for me, if I don't have to come here, yeah, I'll take your living water. That'd be great. How many Christians, how many people, I should say, claim to be Christians because of this? I say, Jesus, I will believe in you if you satisfy my worldly desires, my health, wealth, prosperity. I'll come to church every Sunday if you satisfy my needs in this world. I'll give you godliness for gain in this world. Sign me up for that. And they sign up, and they do, but they're still dead, and they perish. So the woeful reality of our lives without Christ is that our souls thirst, and they thirst, and they thirst. And we look around this world, and we're trying to find the things that satisfy. We try to find our satisfaction in the things that we own, the things that we can buy. We try to find our satisfaction in our jobs, in our wealth, in our status. We try to find our satisfaction in our health or our fitness. We try to find our satisfaction in our relationships, our friendship, our family. We look and we look, but we're never satisfied. Our souls, they thirst and they thirst and thirst. Because without Christ, without this living water, we can't 
be satisfied. But the wonderful news here is that Jesus is here at the well. And he says, I have living water for you. Believe in me and you will thirst no more. I don't care if you're a sinner. I don't care if you're impure or unclean. I don't care where you've come from, what you've done in your past. I don't care what brought you up to this point. I'm here. And I mean to have you in heaven. That's such great news. But now the danger for us is that we need to make sure that we aren't deceiving ourselves in believing in Jesus to elevate our own worldly status. Instead of in believing in Jesus for the satisfaction of our souls. We need to check our hearts. We need to ensure that we're not just going to Jesus just because Jesus is lifting that bucket and making it a little easier. Because our hearts are deceitful, and we're going to see that in the second exchange that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. So Jesus, after offering this woman living water and seeing the emptiness in her heart, he changes gears a bit. And he switches subjects, and at first it's going to seem a little random, but it's far from that because Jesus knew this woman. He knew her life. He knew her heart. So in verse 16, Jesus tells her, go, go call your husband here and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband because for you have had five husbands and the one that you have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I think you're a prophet. What's Jesus doing here? He is being extremely intentional. He knew that this woman didn't have a husband when he asked the question. He knew who this woman was the moment he saw her. I think there's two reasons that Jesus is doing this. The first is he is exposing where she's trying to satisfy her thirst, her soul's thirst. This woman does not have a husband because she's had five husbands. And the man that she's currently sleeping with right now is not her husband. There's only a few reasons that you would have five husbands. It's possible she was widowed five times. I I don't think that's likely from the context of the passage, but it's possible. But the other two reasons that I think are more likely she has had five husbands is she's either one, a serial adulterer. She's gone from relationship to relationship over and over again, thirsting for satisfaction that she can't get. She's seeking her satisfaction in these sexual relationships because without them, she feels empty. Or the second reason is that she's been dropped by these five men over and over again. And the wounds that 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 has caused has brought her to this point that has given her a desperation for any relationship that will finally last. Either way, this woman's sin is being exposed. Jesus, he's not exposing her sin in front of people in public. He's not exposing her sin here to cause her shame. He's exposing her sin to expose the thirst of her soul. And you know this because he drops the subject. Right? He, he drops the subject because she's, she's about to change the subject and he just drops it. Jesus, he exposes her adultery, exposes her sin, her lust, her need for 
satisfaction in these relationships. And, and verse 20, I mean, in this not very sly way at, at all, the woman's like, yeah, I think you're a prophet. So how about worship? Where do you think we should worship Jesus? It's, it's, and Jesus just follows her down that train of, of thought. He drops it. So he didn't bring this up for closure on the topic, but he did bring it up to reveal where this, her soul is thirsting and where she's, where she's trying to satisfy that, even if she doesn't know it. So Jesus, he, he's offered her living water, but she has to accept it with faith. And he wants her to have this living water, but her soul is looking to find its satisfaction elsewhere. And Jesus is trying to, to get across to this woman here. She's saying, he's saying it's not about men. It's about me, Jesus, Messiah, Savior, the living water. Your soul is made to drink in the deep satisfaction of Jesus. Your soul is a cavern that can only be satisfied when it's filled with the spring of living water welling up inside. Now, one of the pieces of evidence that we're not drinking this living water, either because, one, you're an unbeliever or, and you've never tasted this living water, or two, because you are a believer and something has lured you away from this water to another fountain and you keep drinking from that, the evidence is, is the instability of constantly moving from one thing to the next, seeking to fill the void. Maybe it's sexual partners or friends or jobs or hobbies or churches where you're always seeking that next thing. You tell yourself that you'll finally be satisfied when I get that next raise, that next promotion, that next car. You'll be satisfied finally once I get married, once I can have kids, once I buy that house that I've really been waiting for. When you're not drinking the living water, there is no deeply contented identity in Christ. Your soul, it is a cavern, a ginormous cavern of desire. And Jesus says that if you come to me, you will thirst no more. You will become content in who I say you are. Second reason I think Jesus is bringing this up is to expose her deceit. When Jesus asked this woman to bring her husband, she was trying to deceive him. But more significantly, I think she was trying to deceive herself. She said, I have no husband, which is true. She spoke truth, but it was deceitful. She knew what she was doing. She was telling the truth, but she was trying to hide her sin. She was manipulating language as a way not to expose what was going on in her life and in her heart. How often do we see that? Maybe the better question is, how often do we do that? Right? Those non-answers, those half-truths that we tell. You know, when you're stuck in a pattern of sin and one of your really close friends, they come to you and, and ask, how are you doing? Like, like, really doing? And you say, I'm, I'm great. That weather, weather outside was great. That's good. I, I enjoyed the game last night. It was awesome. You know that's not what they were asking. It's deceit. We deceive as a way to protect ourselves from the shame that we might experience. 
But instead, what that's actually doing is that it's hardening up places in our souls that are yearning, truly yearning to be exposed to the living water of Christ. Jesus, he knows everything about you. He knows the hidden stuff, the deep, deep thoughts, the feelings, the midnight stuff, the things that you did when you were young that you're really ashamed of. He knows. For many of you, it's probably not sex like it was for this woman. For some, it might be. But maybe it's pride or greed. Maybe it's gluttony or sloth. Maybe it's idolatry or covetousness. Whatever it is, when you get stuck in a serial routine of sin, your heart gets harder and it gets harder. And the living water, it can't reach those crevices of your soul. See, the willful truth about our lives is that we deceive ourselves into believing that we don't actually have any problems. That our heart is content in this world, and while it searches and searches for satisfaction that it can never actually find. But the wonderful truth is that Jesus exposes the truth of our hearts. John 3, 19 to 21, he says, And this is the judgment the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus can explain why this woman goes from man to man. He can explain why you go from sin to sin. God made you. He understands passion and desire. He understands aching and loneliness. He says, I am here for you. Everyone in this room is made with this cavernous soul that is made for Christ. But we are trying to satisfy it with other things. And we jump and we jump and we jump from thing to thing until we learn how to drink this living water. Recognition of our deadness, recognition of our hardness, recognition of our lack of any taste for this living water. It's the beginning of hope. When we're revealed, when we're laid bare by the text, when your heart is being exposed, it's in, do, in doing that, it is so that you might know Jesus better. Self-knowledge is about God-knowledge. The exposure of ourselves is about the exposure of Christ to ourselves. As if we don't know the depths of our own hardness, we won't know where we're excluding him. But if, you, if we could be exposed if we could be laid bare, if the word of God would cut through the hardness of our hearts, then there would be places for living water. So if you feel yourself laid bare tonight, you find yourself in bed praying, God, let me know the things about life that I've never known, the things that I've, I've, I've hidden from myself and from you. Let me taste like I've never tasted before. Heal 
this broken, sinful vessel, know that that's really good news. It's good surgery. There are places that the water wants to go. That sin has so hardened over, so locked up, that you can't know Christ the way that Christ wants to be known. You can't enjoy him the way that Christ wants to be enjoyed. He knows. He knows your soul. He knows your soul thirsts. He knows that he's the only way that you'll stop going from thing to thing and that your sin's getting in the way. And so he says, let me be your satisfaction. Let Jesus go to work. This third exchange here that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. Let's move on to that. Jesus, he, he's offered her living water, which, we didn't under, which she didn't understand. He graciously, he were there, graciously exposed her soul's thirst and her deceitful heart. And then as I alluded to, she changes the subject. Verse 20, our, our fathers, they worshiped on this mountain, but you say that it, in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. She tries to engage Jesus on this uh, theological conversation around worship. You know, my people, we worship uh, on Mount Gerizim. The Israelites, they worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? Where should one go to worship? And Jesus, he follows her down this change of topic from her own sin and adultery and deceit to worship. But instead of answering her question directly, he, he gets the heart of the matter Worship isn't about a place. It's not about where you worship, but who. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Jesus is saying that God is your father. But you don't know him. Jesus in John two nineteen says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is the new temple. The temple was about to pass away as the focal point of worship. And it's not a temple or a city that will take its place. It's not a new building, but what will take its place is a new person in Jesus, the Son, Savior, Messiah. But he says, you don't know who you worship. That statement, it's blunt, it's painful to hear. The problem with the Samaritans With you Samaritans, it's not where you're worshiping. It's not that you're worshiping on the wrong mountain. The problem is that you have no idea who you're worshiping. For salvation is from the Jews. What does Jesus mean by that? He doesn't mean that all Jews knew God. It's pretty clear from other pieces of Scripture that the Pharisees, the people that at that time would claim they knew God, God the best. They didn't know him. So what does he mean? He means that that the Jews taught that a Savior is coming to the world and that he is going to come. The Son of David, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, and because there will be a Savior, true knowledge of God and true worship of God are possible. She wasn't expecting that answer. Worshiping what you do not know is vain, empty, worship. It's not true worship at all. It's seeking out an emotional high, not penetrating truth. Far too often, we people are looking for a worship experience. 
They want to feel something, some sort of emotion, and then they go out looking for it, bouncing from church to church saying, nah, I don't, I don't like that music or that preaching style's not for me. And they never find a place of true worship. They're, they're seeking experiences. They're not seeking Jesus. They're looking for, for feeling good, getting an emotional high out of an experience, not seeking the heart of their Savior. Some of you might have, might have seen this on the news or, or social media recently. Uh, Asbury College, it's a, a small college in Kentucky. It's had a, a massive nonstop worship service for nearly two weeks. Uh, I think 10 days, maybe 11 now. They, they have continued to, to pray, to lift up um, their voices in, in song, lift up praises to God. The people are coming, sharing their testimony. A number of people are coming to the altar to confess that they now believe in Christ. Um, there's some, some really awesome stuff going there. People are coming and going. They haven't been there constantly for, for two weeks. Um, but there's been constantly someone there. And it's great. God is working there, doing some amazing things. But of course, now, people from all over the country are flying into this college so that they might experience it. They want to experience this revival. Now, don't get me wrong. What God is doing there is amazing and should not be discounted. Seeing God reach the hearts of these people through this small college is awesome. And we should lift up our praises to him for that but why do people feel like they have to go to Asbury College to worship? They need to go to Mount Asbury. Why do they need to travel somewhere to know and to experience God? See, if you're looking for a, a place instead of looking for a Savior, then you're looking in the wrong spot. If you're looking for some type of music instead of some type of truth, you're looking in the wrong spot. If you're looking for an experience or an emotional high instead of looking for the living water, you're looking in the wrong spot. And that's the woeful truth about us, that our hearts, they thirst. They want worship. They seek everything and anything to worship. But if it's not centered on Christ, it's empty. It's meaningless worship. The, wolf, the wonderful news, though, about God is that he is seeking out true worshipers. Those that will worship him in spirit and truth. The only way to worship God in spirit and truth is to be born again, to have the living water, the Holy Spirit, as the satisfaction for your soul. The only way to worship God in spirit and truth is to believe in Jesus as Savior, Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. True worship is not about where you worship. It's not about an experience. It's about worshiping the truth of your Savior. You cannot worship someone that you reject. You cannot worship someone that you put off to the side as something nice to have in your life. But it needs to be the center of it. You can't worship Jesus without him being the center of your existence. And Jesus, he's seeking those people. 
He's meeting them at the well and saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. I have living water for you. Take it. And your soul, it won't thirst anymore. You won't go seeking. I'm going to seek you. Your heart will be able to worship finally with gladness. Now I know I'm up against it for time and there's still one pretty big section left in this passage. Um, Unfortunately, I I won't have time to dig into much meat of of this next section, but but I'm going to go through it as a way of concluding this morning. Uh, Verse 27, Jesus, he he finishes up this conversation with the, the woman and um, his disciples, they, they return, um, and they're confused. The, the men that he's been traveling with, that have been spending every moment with, uh, they were confused. And what, what could Jesus possibly be doing here with this woman? Um, but the woman started to understand, and she goes back into town. And I love this little detail that John adds here. Uh, she leaves her bucket, right? She leaves her water pail. The truth that she just learned is so great. She doesn't want to be slowed down by carrying this water. So she leaves the water behind. And she goes into town. She starts telling people about Jesus, the living water. And then this passage, it switches back to Jesus and his disciples. And John uses a pretty nice literary device here. He leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Um, And so Jesus starts talking to his disciples, and they're encouraging him to eat. Jesus, though, he's telling them. He has food that they don't know about. And they're, they're confused by this, naturally. They don't know, like, did he sneak food away? Did someone bring him food? What's, what's going on here? They didn't get it. But Jesus, he responds in a very Jesus way, and a response that only he can truly say. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus is being sustained not on bread alone, but by doing the work the Father sent him to do. For while the disciples were off getting food, Jesus was off giving the living water. It was actually the same thing that he sent the disciples to go do. They didn't see it. He didn't send all of his disciples into Sychar just to go get food. He sent them to go spread the news about him sent them to go share the gospel, sent them to reach a lost people. They didn't see it. So Jesus, he sent another. He sent the Samaritan woman, a woman who has a heretical, adulterous past, a woman who in this town would not be thought very highly of because they know her. But he sent her to reap the harvest that the disciples failed to gather, and she did. This group of Samaritans who were ceremoniously unclean, racially impure, religiously heretical, came to know the Son, the living water, Messiah, Savior. Our souls, they thirst. And no matter what we try to quench that thirst with, if it's not the living water, we will thirst again. We deceive ourselves into thinking that's not the case. We deceive ourselves into hardening parts of our souls so that the living water can seep in. And we seek out experiences instead of our Savior 
And that's the woeful truth about us without Christ. But Jesus, he's here at the well. We don't have a Savior who just says from a distance, follow me. We have a Savior that pursues the darkest of hearts. We have a Savior that pursues relationships with sinners. Just like us. People who have shame and regret. Who know that we don't deserve him. Jesus, he's seeking you. He's seeking you to be a true worshiper. He won't let you go on living in your sin. He wants to expose the depths of your soul so that you, that are getting in the way of his living water. Because he knows that only him, only he can be the only thing that will truly satisfy you. And our Savior, he wants the very depths of our soul to seek deep satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth, for your relentless pursuit of our hearts. We know, God, that we far too often seek things that are meant to satisfy, that aren't meant to satisfy us as our true satisfaction. But you've given us a living water. You've given us a way that we won't thirst any more. We are able to find deep satisfaction in you. We pray, Lord, that you would cut through our sin, that you would expose it and bring it to life so that we might see where we have gotten in the way of your water, put up rocks, hardened it. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to seek you in ways that we've never done before and that you would bring us to a deep satisfaction in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand.